Welcome back to Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt and we are recording this a day after the final of the 2018 World Cup when simultaneously the gods of weather, the gods of narrative and the gods of football smiled on us. It was the best World Cup final since at least 1986. The highest scoring in 90 minutes since Sweden lost to Brazil 5-2 in 1958 and best of all it ended with the most extraordinary thunder storm that soaked the dignitaries to their skin. With me, I hope to sing a little chorus of I Can See Clearly Now, The Rain Has Gone. I have with me Al Jazeera's Tony Caron and producer Roger Shah. Hello, hello, David. Uh, bonjour, David. <laughs> hello, guys. And dialing in from New York, our editor, Carnish Theroux. Bonjour, David. <laughs> Vive la France. Carnish, when we last spoke, you said to us there have been a few scheduling issues with this World Cup final, your firstborn's baptism uh, going on at the same time. Tell me, was there divine intervention? Did somebody manage to get a message to you in the midst of it as to how the game was going? <laughs> well, I actually got to see the Perisic screaming equaliser before having to head off to the church. And along the way, my Bangladeshi cab driver was trying to stream the match on his phone and almost got us into a car accident. That's the uh, kind of devotion to duty I like to hear. First of all, full disclosure on this final. Number one, I had 20 quid each way at 9-1 to one on France to win that I put on before the tournament. The sole moment when I actually used my head rather than my heart. Second on the full disclosure front, I watched this final with my Francophone neighbours, the lovely French Catherine and Belgian Pierre. Obviously, I had red, white and blue face paint on. And... <laughs> And I blew at least part of my winnings on a large bottle of French champagne to celebrate. So no, <laughs> no doubt as to who I was supporting during that game. Tony, let's start with you. Where were you watching it? How did you feel? What did you make of it all? Well, I was watching at a Portuguese pub named in honor of Bartolomeu Dias, who, of course, the as the, the coasters on the tables told you, discovered the Cape in uh, 14, you know, 1490-something. <laughs> and I was so happy that Portugal were nowhere near the final. But, you know, the calamari was good. Now, 10 minutes from time with France 4-2 up, I was still, there was still a sense that this game could go either way. I mean, it was a magnificent spectacle. It was a chaotic game. This is a, a you know very negative defense of France, but they're not on their game. They keep giving the ball away. I saw shades of '74, you know, where where the Dutch are by far the better team, but lose. I saw shades again, actually, in the result of Euro 2016 semi-final, where Germany plays France off the park, but France wins. And uh, you know, I'm extremely happy that France won. These were, you know, this is Africa's team. This is Pogba celebrating. Pogba goading the press for all the crap that they talk about him. Lovely. I'm totally thrilled and happy. But, you know, it's really hard to say that the better team on the day won. Yeah, it was certainly true that and even in the last 10 minutes, you felt that if uh, Croatia got it to 4-3 by some fluky goal or a great shot, then they had the energy and they had the determination to press it right to the very end. So it didn't feel like two actually was necessarily entirely comfortable. There was something incredibly relentless about the Croatians, no? Karnish, how did you see it when you actually saw it in the flesh? So it's fun, it's interesting to watch a match that you've sort of 
received a narrative about beforehand. And I had assumed that, you know, tip, in typical fashion of this of these uh, Didier Deschamps French teams, that after taking a lead, the French would sort of sit on the game, frustrate the Croats, not let them through. But I was so surprised by that second half. How many chances, how many openings, how many threats the, the, the Croats posed. So I was, you know, I was immensely impressed with the perseverance of that Croat team. This is a team that throughout the work, throughout the knockout phases, has come back and not been afraid of, of falling behind and really pushed hard. To be very honest, I was actually almost neutral in this game. I, I wouldn't have minded if either team won, including the Croats. I know we've had a lot of vilifying of their fascist leanings on this in, in this podcast, but I wouldn't have minded if the Croats won. And I was very impressed by them, and I felt quite sad at the end for a player like Luka Modric, for whom this is almost, I mean, certainly the last World Cup, um, who played so well, who was really, this, this game could have been the pinnacle of his career, and he deservedly won the golden ball, and he's leaving without the trophy and facing uh, facing time in jail. I, I want to throw in something else about this French team and the way that they play. You feel like this is a team of unbelievable talent, unbelievable attacking flair and verve, and they're playing you know, with the handbrake on in first gear. I would really love to see this team unleashed. I'd really love to see this generation of players, and I really mean a generation, because there was this extraordinary thing where at the end of the game, the players on the bench all run onto the field, and you're like, oh my God, that's these are players that would make any, you know, any other team at the World Cup. They have 11 players on the bench who could just as well have started. So, this generation, I think, you know, they could really uh, provide spectacular entertainment as well as success in in the next decade. One aspect of this final that we must mention, a final brimming with symbolic politics, was actually a fantastic political pitch invasion in the second half in which four people affiliated with Pussy Riot, the feminist activist collective that's forever getting under Vladimir Putin's skin, stormed the pitch, all dressed, I thought, as comic police officers uh, that stopped the game for about, I don't know, 30 seconds. And I don't know if you saw the pictures uh, on uh, on Twitter, but there's an extraordinary contrast between uh, Lovgren, who is uh, pretty much tackling one of them to the ground, and Mbepe, who does a double high five with the other. I just thought that was a very sweet contrast. Did you see that, guys? Absolutely. And I think there's a, this is a brilliant encapsulation of what we could may, may want to call the dialectics of this global spectacle. Because on the one hand, you have Vladimir Putin smiling smugly in the stand, presiding over this unprecedented global spectacle. Like you are in Manchester, you are in Mumbai, you are in, in Nokchot, you are in New York, you are in, in Shanghai, Seattle, eight, all points in between. There are a billion people who are literally watching the same five takes that the ref is watching to determine whether that's a penalty. This is absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, Putin is presiding. And then suddenly the same platform is hijacked by this group of punk anarchist protesters, which is absolutely brilliant. Putin can't control what happens on the field. And lo and behold, it turns out that he's given a little bit of a bloody nose at what was to be his, you know, his crowning glory moment. The bloody nose was good, but it was the drenching that really got me. Carnage, describe, if you can, for our listeners who might not have seen it, the scenes during the presentation of the trophy. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was something out of a comic book, really. You have Putin and then Emmanuel Macron and, oh gosh, 
the president of Croatia. The, the president of Croatia. Oh now, God. let's get her name. Let's get her name, guys. Isn't it, is it, oh, it's a double barrel name, isn't it? Is some, <laughs> somebody Google it very, this is, this oh, is terrible. You're going to have to work on your Panini book of uh, European anti-immigrant nationalist politicians, eh? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> Kolinda Grabar-Kitarovic. That's Kolinda... Um, <laughs> Kolinda Grabar, so you're the president of Croatia and France, Kolinda Grabar Kitarovic and Emmanuel Macron, next to Gianni Infantino, who's the president of FIFA, and of course, Vladimir Putin. And arrayed behind them is this sort of completely frozen panoply of Qatar Airways stewardesses or models dressed as Qatar Airways stewardesses, who are completely dissolving in this torrential rain. But, but they can't, they can't, they're not allowed to unlock their smile. At which point a flunky shows up with one umbrella, which goes over the head of Vladimir Putin. And so I believe this is when the Croatian team is coming up to get their medals and their condolences. And all the other leaders are just getting absolutely soaked. But there is Putin under the comfortable shade of a giant umbrella, um, happily sort of clapping players on the back, passing the medals on, uh, and, 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 and making sure that he's there on the stage without getting too drenched. I liked it as well that Infantino, who's considerably taller than Putin, wasn't able to kind of muscle in and hide under the umbrella next to him because Putin's too small. So it was kind of set at the side of Infantino's head. And just to emphasize, I mean, you could actually see rivulets of water coming off of Macron's suit. You know, I mean, the water is pouring off of Infantino's head. It looked to me, and I might be wrong, it, that they, that the stage management of this event went completely awry because there's a moment where the French team have all got their medals. They're all in front of that that little hoarding, you know, the, the photo up where the, where the fireworks are going to be. And it looks like somebody goes, oh, damn, they, you know, I, well, not oh, damn, oh, beep. Somebody forgot to give them the cup. And so Infantino wades into the scrum to go looking for Hugo Lloris with the World Cup. Somehow in the midst of the pouring rain that has gone by the by. I mean, in a way, it was just great to see the kind of insufferable polished stuffiness of those occasions completely, completely <laughs> destroyed at that moment. In, and after they were drenched in the rain and then that golden confetti comes up and then it sticks to them. And so they're these kind of like gold leaf encrusted players. But then how can you begrudge the gorgeous strapping figure of, of Olivier Giroud, my heartthrob, <laughs> lifting the World Cup and then not letting anybody else hold the World Cup for what seemed like five minutes. Um, that I, made me happy. That made me smile. Two other little details on the uh, on the celebrations. Again, I saw on Twitter today a short piece of film. There's a woman with a kind of blondish bob who's standing behind uh, Putin and Infantino, and she's got a tray of medals, I think, and she's on Twitter swiping one of the medals off the tray and sticking it in her pocket. <laughs> I oh mean, my. like, this is an era of VAR, people. What do you think is going to happen? Check actually, that one out. Had, I don't know who she oh, That's many. amazing. But actually, now that you mention it, I think one thing that I did notice that I think is also absolutely extraordinary, again, I'm, you know, being the, the techno-futurist uh, utopian here, I know, but the selfies, the French flares, like no sooner has the final whistle gone, then, you know, I, I think it's my Tweedy has his phone out and suddenly it's open season. They're all taking all these selfies and then we're all watching them on Instagram. We've, the, the degree of, of access we have to the dressing room now is absolutely unprecedented and it's fun. 
I want to just draw back a moment and take us to the beginning of the tournament when Gianni Infantino, I thought rather rashly at the opening uh, game, suggested that football was going to conquer Russia. Um, I wonder, um, guys, what you make of that argument five weeks later. Has football conquered Russia or has Russia actually used and played FIFA and football superbly? I'd have to go with the latter. I, I don't think football ever changes uh, the culture, the economy, or you know even the the, the zeitgeist in in a host country for more than a couple of weeks. Putin is definitely the major beneficiary of this World Cup. I don't think ordinary Russians benefit much more than boosting its its the standing of ordinary Russians in the eyes of people in the West, perhaps. But uh, I know, think I that's think globally. I think everyone has, everyone yeah. who wasn't thinking about it beforehand has worked out that your average Russian and Russian civil society is, you know, not a billion miles from everywhere else, open, generous, warm when given the opportunity. And that's got, you know, I wonder, does that actually make us even crosser that they have to endure the regime that they live under? No, I mean, that and 25, you know, that goodwill and 25 rubles will buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. In Moscow. But but do you think it's really changed the narrative about Putin? I mean, I don't think anybody on the outside, at least, is going to think any differently about Putin than they did before. Um, and I also think, I, I mean, I do, we, we were talking earlier in the tournament about the possibilities of a new of new kinds of public space however temporary opening in Russia as a result of the World Cup so I, do, I don't want to be completely cynical um, football can only achieve so much um, a World Cup can only achieve so much but I do think it's interesting what's happened in Russia and I think it may have consequences down the road Russia is not the only country whose reputation, both on and off the pitch, has been transformed and shaped by this World Cup. Tony, I wanted to ask you, how are you feeling about the status of African football at the end of this World Cup? I guess the hard results would suggest that one should feel depressed or despondent. But you know what? We don't think that way. I don't think Africa thinks that way. I was having a fantastic conversation this very day with a Congolese guy on the streets of Cape Town who parks cars I was trying to get, who does he support at the World Cup? Because, you know, obviously Congo is not there. And I'm assuming his number one would be Senegal. And he's like, no, number one, Belgium. Number two, Senegal. <laughs> he doesn't support okay. France at all. I'm like, oh. But, I mean, Africa has always, not only in football, but perhaps more generally, been a little skeptical of the nation state, as a, which is bequeathed by colonialism in, in, in Africa, as the foundation of, of somebody's identity. I mean, those things obviously have a place, but they're not absolutely definitive. So I think Africa was very excited by France, by this French team with which many people could identify because, you know, Africa's in, in a state of migration, not only from Africa to Europe, but even within Africa. Cape Town has, has thousands of people who are Somali, who are Congolese, who are from Senegal, Etc. So, you know, the sense of uh, who we are is a little more complex than, than the nation states. And there's plenty of African football represented at the very top of, of the game. Doesn't look like Asia is really competing either, Karnish. I mean, with the exception of Japan making it through to the round of 16. How do you, how do you read that? And how do you read that as, a, as an indicator of football more widely in the continent? 
I thought I thought Iran played very well. I mean, they're a very competent, organized team. They're quite robust. Um, South Korea, we know, beat Germany in that quite memorable game. And Japan, oh gosh, I really, I, I find that this Japanese team has so much charisma. And for me, the moment in the World Cup that was at once one of the greatest sporting moments, as well as being the moment of greatest heartbreak, and that is Belgium's exquisite, phenomenal, last-minute third goal against Japan to recover from being down 2-0 to win 3-2 in the last minute. And it just hit me. It was such a it was such a sucker punch. Um, because I, you know, fully recognizing that Japan have a lot of imperial history and uh, colonial angst that they've generated as well, they were the one Asian team that, that had survived into the knockout phase and they had played brilliantly against Belgium. Belgium, who I, I think are also a wonderful team to watch. And so it was it was one of those moments where this kind of immense possibility seemed to be opening up before you. And then it sort of slams shut and the sort of reality sinks in that no, there's no way an Asian team is going to win. And that was hard to deal with. Um, at the same time, I couldn't begrudge that last goal. And, and, the, and as, as, as we've discussed before, the, the beautiful movement of Lukaku. Tony, what was your favorite goal? You can't have that one. You, you have to t- choose your best goals on the basis of what they mean. Um, so the goal for me that was that, that had the most meaning was Chucky Lozano's winner against yes. Germany. I mean, that was the earthquake, the earthquake, right? Mexico yes. City earthquake. That was just fantastic. And I never felt as good throughout the rest of the tournament as I felt in that moment of absolute joy. Uh, goals that kind of, you were like, where the hell did that come from? Cherishev against Croatia. I'm like, that was the most, one of the most beautiful goals of the tournament scored in a team that did not play beautiful football at all. And also, you know, I think in terms of the virtues of the game, the kind of old pro, the keeping your head when when everybody around you is losing theirs, I have to say that Mandzukic goal against England was pretty special too. A goal that made a difference and a goal that was a product of keeping your head. Fighting words. It made me happy too. (laughs) <laughs> well, you'll forgive me if my favourite goal was Eric Dyer's penalty uh, to finally, <laughs> finally, finally win a penalty shootout. My own personal greatest pleasure as, uh, you know, a kind of train spotter in this department is that here in Britain, but I would actually say everywhere that I have read the press around the world, this has been the most socially and politically conscious World Cup. The kind of dual conversation that's going on about football mm. and all of the other issues that it speaks to is magnified many times over uh, I mean it was extraordinary you know in the run up to um, the World Cup final itself to hear a seven minute detailed conversation on issues of corruption and legal process in Croatian football and how this might affect uh, Luka Modric's performance at the same time to hear Gary Neville live on television discussing Brexit in the context of the World <laughs> Cup I mean you know we've moved a long way people this is an extraordinary kind of uh, uh, sort of shift in the way that the the game is being consumed and discussed could those of us who have taught or written for years about you know trying to invest this game with so much more more meaning to assuage the guilt of our pleasure in football (laughs) can we at least say it's coming home (laughs) (laughs) I think it also helplessly produced so many moments that begged that kind of analysis I mean think about the Serbia-Switzerland game right and the Albanian double-head eagle Um, 
following that with uh, Dayan Lovren's uh, singing in the Croatian locker room against Argentina, and we've all become experts on 1990s <laughs> Balkan politics and uh, and the ins and outs of nationalism and its formation in that region. There's so many of these storylines that just produce themselves, um, and I'm glad that people have been able to take notice. Um, but I think it's also just uh, you know we're aware of. Of, of the power of representation that these footballers have, right? And and, and the weight that's put upon them. Um, and we're so much we're so much more alive to it now, perhaps because of social media. Um, perhaps those moments that would have otherwise just been brushed aside and swept, you know, swept away, swept under the carpet, maybe those moments get magnified because everybody's pouring over them in such great detail online. I think you're right to say the digital chorus has been stupendous and incredibly interesting at this World Cup. But I have to say, and of course, you know, I, I'm, I, I wasn't in the stadium, you know, I'm in Bristol, uh, I'm consuming this on the television, but the nature of the crowds has changed. You know, overwhelmingly neutrals, with the exception of a number of Latin American pussies, basically very small groups of away fans, um, not particularly um, organised, not singing very much, despite the most desperate miking up um, from the uh, the producers. Pretty poor quality atmosphere. And when a few people do finally get it together to generate some emotion or activity, everybody around them then starts taking photographs of them, which at least is a change from them taking photographs of themselves. <laughs> but I found that absolutely excruciating. And I know that the World Cup in the end is not really, you know, it's happening in multiple connected spaces. Um, and the passion and the intensity of it can actually be much greater a thousand miles away. But I think there is a real issue, despite the stadiums being pleasingly full, and this was not the case in South Africa and this was not the case in Brazil where there was a serious empty space, I thought the quality of the atmosphere was poor. What did you, how did you read it, guys? Carnish. Yeah, so I think that is a purely that's purely a function of Latin America not doing well on the pitch. This was very much a World Cup dominated by Western by by Western Europe or by by Europe on the pitch and Latin America off the pitch. Latin Americans traveled in droves. I mean, look at the atmosphere of the first Peru game, Peru versus Denmark. It is extraordinary, you know? Look, when Mexico played, they said it felt like a home game. Latin Americans showed up to this World Cup and they traveled the furthest distances, they paid the most. Europeans didn't. Europeans really didn't. There was a 40% drop off in the number of English people that traveled to the World Cup this year. Um, and so, I, and I, 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 I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to say why. I think part of it is, part of it is obviously the messaging around Russia in the in the in the lead up to the tournament. But if the Latin American teams had gone further, I think you would have had better atmosphere. So the World Cup is over, but I, I think we should have one last what to watch before we all get out of here. Uh, now I'll spare you the bumper. I think we retired it officially last time. And anyway, this Hooray! one's going to be. <laughs> You know, you never have to hear it again, Dave Goldblatt. Um, that's my gift to you. Uh, end of season gift. One of many, Roger Shaw. <laughs> um, this one's a little different anyway. As you guys know, you know, most of my sports consuming part of my brain is devoted to basketball and specifically the New York Knicks, which is, for people who don't know, uh, not a good place to be. This is a, a totally irrelevant team and they have been for a very long time. But I will say after this last month and really working on this show for the last couple seasons... 
I am I'm in. I'm in on football. I even call it football now, much to the chagrin of my friends, uh, but whatever. Um, and and so I need a team to adopt, hopefully one that's better than the Knicks. And you guys each have different rooting interests. There's Spurs, Liverpool, Arsenal. And so this is more of a who to watch. I'm coming to you for your advice. Who should I pick? Raja, I think you should actually avoid the Premier League. Oh, um, really? Yeah, avoid the Premier League and take advantage of the fact that the Bundesliga is really well broadcast in the United States and try to tune into one of the teams there. Um, I would say the advan- one of the advantages about watching the Bundesliga is that you get to see fully, uh, often you know, full stadiums, packed to the brim, heaving and chanting, huge standing areas, which are uh, which are no longer there in the Premier League, in, in the top flight of English football. Um, and in many, many of the aspects of the game that people miss in the UK, um, the ease of access, the cheapness of tickets and so forth, are still alive in the German League. You know, like a season ticket to a German team costs a fraction of what a season ticket costs in, 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 in the Premier League. Which team, um, so though? Which team? Well, so... I have a soft spot for uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is a mouthful, but they're one sort of a, they're they're sort of like um, an uh, they were good in the seventies, so they're much like the Knicks, and not um, good enough. Yeah, you might you might find um, some kinship there. So on that theme, uh, you know, firstly, look, I could say to you as I ought to as a lifelong Liverpool fan, it's like adopting a religion, and you know, you have to be ready to go through a lot of pain you really have to be willing to you know embrace the collective suffering that is supporting any english team and in that spirit i'm going to go completely counterintuitive here and actually recommend that you support arsenal because arsenal is a team like your knicks that have actually long since you know had their hands on a on a title had their hands on a championship <laughs> they, they've been getting by on faded glory arsene wenger outstayed his his usefulness by about 10 years and but they're a great team. They've got a great history. They've got a great culture around the club. But what I really like is their new coach, Unai Emery, is making some very pragmatic choices, some very steely choices. He's basically going to meld a different Arsenal, an Arsenal that does not like to lose, that is going to be gritty, that is going to be steely, that it's going to be very attract- attractive attacking football. I'm predicting that Arsenal finish in the top four uh, this year again, they regain that place as contenders, and I know Kanishka's probably worrying that I'm jinxing it. He may yeah, well be right, but completely. I would actually recommend you know Arsenal's a smart choice. Uh, I mean, I will. I will okay, I'm intrigued. What you were saying earlier was worrying me because I already have a team that has a history of losing and is continuously disappointing me. So I would prefer to to, to support someone who's actually going to have some chance of winning something. You can't approach football that way. It's, it's not the football ethos. You don't. Like, you should no never way. expect to win. Then you then you support Chelsea or Manchester City, and then mm. look oh, at the mess. Yeah, no, I don't like that. You know, let's not even mention Manchester United. So obviously they're all off the agenda. Nobody can suggest to you that you should possibly support any of those teams. Arsenal, Schmarsenal, what can I say? Have some individuality, a billion people already supporting Arsenal. Discover <laughs> your inner Jew, Roger Shah. <laughs> I, I know, I don't know your family, but I suspect a whole range of neuroses are going on inside it, not dissimilar <laughs> from many of those in my own family. 
I think the Tottenham Hotspurs could be the team for you. We're on the up. We're in a new stadium. We've got a very classy range of players. We're playing exciting football. Unlike Arsenal, we will continue to play exciting football. <laughs> unlike <laughs> Arsenal. Hey, and we probably won't win anything. But, you know, right. I think you've got to come over here, Roger. I think you've got to get out of San Francisco. You've got to get out of that little studio that I've been seeing you in for the last month and come and embrace the love. I will personally take you on a tour of a range of footballing establishments here in the here in England. And then you can see who you fall in love with. Think of it as a kind of complex form of Tinder. <laughs> I like that idea. Who should Roger support? Send your messages to us. Scarves welcome. Okay, one last thing to say. The World Cup happens not just in the stadiums, not just in the streets of Russia, but in living rooms, studios, and above all, podcast studios everywhere. To capture this event, we have brought you guests from across 13 time zones, hosts on three continents. We have recorded in cars, hotel rooms and trains travelling through the middle of Russia, not to mention a locked car in an upscale but slightly dodgy South African tourist resort. It takes an awful lot of people to put all of this together and it takes an awful lot of work to make it happen. So, we are going to give you, the listeners, a little peek behind the scenes of the Game of Our Lives operation. Roger, you're in San Francisco, and it isn't just you there. This is, in fact, where most of the beautiful people are. Yes, so on the other side of the glass of where I'm sitting right now is actually the room where you and Tony recorded the first demo for this show way back last fall. And right now it's where the core of our production team is sitting. So hang on, let me turn up the mic in there and, uh, and let's say hello. So first off... We have producer and sound designer Meredith Adnott. Hey, Meredith. Hey, hey. Whoa! <laughs> We've also got associate producer Jordan Bailey. Hello. Hey, Jordan. And our managing editor, Casey Miner. Hey, Casey. Hey, guys. Nice one, Casey. Also, let's give a shout out to our social team. Our audience development lead is Graylin Brashear. Hey, guys. Thanks to producer Kiana Mogadam, who also manages our social media. Hi, everybody. Graphic design and animation is by Sophie Feller. And with me in New York, taking care of sound recording here, is Daniel Waldorf. Say hi, Daniel. Hello. We've also got a lot of people at Al Jazeera English who have pitched in, especially on the editorial side. We want to thank Lee Wellings, Tristan Redman, David Child, Rami Alahum, Gihad Kanawi, and of course, Mohammed Pogba Al-Safin. <laughs> and very importantly, recording sound with me right here in Cape Town is Neroli Price. This is a job she does on her side. By day, she's an anti-corruption activist, which of course means that she's here stalking FIFA. Hello. Um, <laughs> yeah, got my eye on them. Yeah, I bet it keeps you busy. And a massive shout out to our engineer here in Bristol, Richard de Mowbray at the Soundtown Studios, who despite being a dead ringer for Olivier Giroud and being an Arsenal supporter, has my love and wonderment. Say hello to the people, Rick. My utter pleasure, David. Uh, I've got a quote as well for you, Tony. Learning never exhausts the mind. Well, <laughs> beautiful thoughts. I also want to thank uh, producers Lacey Roberts and Jasmine Bayumi, our sound designer Ian Koss, PR maven Amanda Shiregi. Uh, we also have to thank sound recordists Anna Sinfield, Otis Gray, and Max Savage-Levinson. And, uh, of course, we cannot forget Houdini, the Jetty Office dog, 
He's been with us through thick and thin. Um, and one day he'll stop barking at me if I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our executive producer is Julie Kane. The general manager is Kazar Kantwala. And special thanks to Al Jazeera's Carlos Van Meek. Our theme music is by Bang Data. Thank you, Tony Caron, editorial lead of AJ+, but above all, the person who got this whole damn thing going on in the first place. Thank you so much. I've loved every moment of it, and what else is there to say, but what do they of cricket know who only cricket know? <laughs> <laughs> That's one for the 1%. And thank you so much to the leading figure in the ABE band, I Love Him So, our content editor, Karnish Theroux. Thank you, Karnish. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. And the man who never sleeps, the man who never forgets, the man who picks up every mistake and every last problem, who foresees it before it happens, <laughs> who has a plan, the fastidious, the wonderful, the fabulous Raja Shah. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That is it, ladies and gentlemen, for season two. We are going to take a break. Vacations are in order. Indeed, they are absolutely necessary. Before I finally sign off, I want to say we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to hear what a post-World Cup game of our lives should look like. So let us know. Go to the survey on our website, gameofourlives.fm, or click on the link in the show notes in your podcast app. I'm David Goldblatt. It's been an extraordinary World Cup. Thank you so much for being with us and listening. Goodbye. All right. Nice job, everybody. Yay! Yay. Guess what? I just have a couple things. Oh, no. <laughs>